Uh, Before I read God's word, let's go to him in prayer, asking for his help. Lord God, your word is truth. It is living and active. And we plead with you now, O God, to make your word work in our hearts. And we confess, O God, that for many of us, we have trained ourselves to become sermon-proof. We've learned to tune it out, perhaps to to give an occasional head nod, but to not bow our hearts before you. And so I pray, O God, that you would take away any sense of resistance and that we would come as your children, hungry for the word, and that we would say in all sincerity, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Would you take out your copy of God's word? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. For those who are visiting, it's our custom to work verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we've been in Hebrews now for about a year. And the fact that we're in Hebrews 13 means we're in the home stretch. We'll probably, Lord willing, finish in the next month or so. There's about 24 verses that are left. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to get our money's worth out of them. Uh, This this stretch of Hebrews at the end is going to be rapid-fire application. It's going to be one thing after another. Many of the New Testament books are written this way. They have extended teaching about the gospel, and then you come to a point, and it starts to say, okay, if this is what you believe, if this is your experience, here's how you are to live, and and I want you to see how Hebrews is doing that. Look back to what we looked at last week at verse 28 of chapter 12 where it says, therefore, let us be grateful to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So he's saying there, if you're grateful for the gospel, if you're grateful for what Jesus has done, worship him. And then there's a a, sort of an opposite bookend in Hebrews 13 verse 15. So look there with me before we come to our scripture reading. It's going to say almost the same thing in different words. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So both of those passages are saying, if you are grateful for the gospel, it ought to radically transform your life. It ought to shape how you live. And what's going to happen in the middle is is practical application, pastoral application about here's how you are to live if you have loved God. Jesus Christ. That's the sum and substance of the Christian life, not what we do to be saved. We cannot do anything to be saved, but Jesus has paid it all, and so the Christian life is returning to God thanks for what Jesus has done on our behalf. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 1. This is the Word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We'll stop there. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. You have probably had the experience of meeting a married couple, and maybe you really like the husband, but the wife can be pretty difficult. 
or vice versa. Uh, you really like the wife, but the husband's just abrasive, and he's not a lot of fun to be around. Now, I'm a little bit sensitive to that because in the equation of me and my wife, she's a whole lot more likable than I am. But in that scenario, if you, if you want to be around the one spouse that you like, you're going to have to learn to love the other one as well. When it comes to Jesus Christ, there is nothing unlovely in him. There is nothing in him that, that ought not captivate the fullness of our hearts. He is easy to love. But when we love Jesus Christ, we're also called to love his bride, his spouse, the church. And she can be a very difficult bride to deal with. But if we love Jesus, then we must love the church. Another image of this is the image of a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Well, when a shepherd calls the sheep to himself, he not only calls them to himself, but he calls them into a flock. He calls them together. And both of those illustrations, the illustration of marriage, the illustration of the flock, mean that everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone who belongs to Jesus. To belong to Jesus is, by his design, to be part of his church. And that's his design because the church is designed to be the chief place of our spiritual growth and service. We simply don't grow to spiritual maturity apart from deep involvement in a community of believers. And part of the reason is the New Testament makes that so clear. All of New Testament life is lived in community. You miss this in the English, but the commands, the vast majority of commands in the New Testament are not you singular, they are y'all. They are you, plural. They are you, together. And so the Christian life is intended to be lived in a band of Christian brothers and sisters, in a family where you find a place. That's the church. But as you know, and I know, life in the church isn't always easy. We probably all could name ways that in our lives in the church we've been hurt by or offended by or or left out of things by other believers we're probably a lot less aware of the ways that we have hurt others but that just happens when you pack sinners into a tight space to gather but if you love christ you must love the church no matter how spotted or blemished she may be, because she is his beloved bride, purchased with his own blood. I think that the occasional difficulty of life in the church, we we can look at it as a necessary evil. I need to be in the church, but church life is hard. But you know, it's more than a necessary evil. Actually, the difficulties of church life, the the friction of sinners packed into a family together, it's actually essential for our growth. I, I think in a way, Christ intends for church life to be hard at times. Not to wound us, but so that we would have regular opportunities 
to share and exercise and extend the graces that we ourselves have received from Jesus. He intends for us in the church to have to sacrifice for the sake of others. He intends for us in the church to pour our lives into others. He intends for us to have to extend and seek forgiveness to one another, just as he has extended forgiveness to us. Life together in the church can be very hard, which means life together only works if we are living in close union with Christ, abiding in Him, daily drinking in His grace so that you and I can extend that grace to one another. And our sacrifice to Him, our offering to Him, our worship to Him, to use all this Hebrews language, is to faithfully live life together in the church. These three verses, we see three things specifically that, that, that teach us how to live as living sacrifices, to live our lives as worship to God in the body of Christ. I'm going to distill them down to their three core principles. The first is let nothing stop you. Let nothing stop you from loving your church family. Second, open up your life to others. Third, care well for one another and show empathy, especially those who are suffering for the gospel. So let's look at those three things. First, let nothing stop you from loving your church family. That comes from verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. What's that mean? It means that you and I need to be deliberate in cultivating and showing true Christian love to one another. Now, this is not a one-off command when it says, let brotherly love continue. It's, it's an exhortation that's given again and again and again in the scriptures. Just think about the night in which our Lord was betrayed. Turn with me to John 13 for a moment. You know, all scripture is, is from the Holy Spirit. All scripture is inspired by God. And so all scripture, we could say, are the words of Jesus, but especially Jesus' words here, on the night in which he's betrayed, he's going to be crucified the next day. What is upon his heart? Look at John 13, starting at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, you can't escape it. You can't escape what he's saying there. There ought to be a deep, abiding love between all who profess to be my children. Well, turn over two chapters, just in case anybody didn't get it. John chapter 15. He, he's talking here about what it is to abide in him, to remain in him, that we must be plugged into him. He's the vine, we are the branches. And he says, here's what you're to do with that. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. How much, Jesus? How much do I have to love my brothers and sisters? He says, as I have loved you. That's how much you're supposed to love each other. Well, how much have you loved us, Jesus? Well, he would just say to us, more than you could possibly comprehend. And that's how you're supposed to love one another. And look five verses later, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
we must, to be in obedience to Christ, to live lives of worship to Christ, must work to love his church. And, and the metaphor that is so often used in Scripture is the metaphor of family, your brothers. Let brotherly love continue. You don't pick your earthly family. You are born into it and likewise you don't pick your brothers and sisters in Christ they are born again into the family and so we need to realize just as you were providentially born into the family that you were raised in by the sovereignty of God as you look around your churches realize that this is the family Jesus has handpicked for you warts and all imperfections and all this is who God has handpicked to be your family it's not always easy. Family life isn't always easy. The family of the church is not always easy. I have many friends who are in ministry, and many of them have very hard times with their churches. I, I think this church is probably one of the easiest churches imaginable to love, but even at times we have our warts, don't we? We can be very difficult at times. It works. We, we, we've been able to build unity, not because we're perfect, but because we work really hard at, at letting brotherly love continue. But you know, if we're not careful, we can offend each other, can't we? We can get wrapped up in what we want and forget about how what we do and how what we say affects others. And that's why the author here says, let brotherly love continue. He's not saying, hey, stand back and it'll just happen on its own. He's saying this takes work. You have, to, you have to actively work at this. And when he says brotherly love, he's not simply talking about good feelings towards each other, uh, really liking each other. You know, it's not less than that. It, it's good for us to like each other. It's good for us to, uh, us to have affection for each other. But when it says, let brotherly love continue, it is a call to sacrificial, costly, Christ-like love. Love is only love when it is attached to action. Love is far more than feeling. In fact, the times that love can be most worshipful to God is when we least feel like loving each other. That's when it requires the most from us. And so we've got to cultivate as a church a genuine delight in one another to say, not only do I want to like that person, but I want to love them as Christ has loved me. Most of you in your families, you have at least one person that's exceptionally hard to love, don't you? It's going to be that same way in the church. There are going to be people that this just takes more work with, but we need to realize the ball isn't in our court. Jesus did not say, if you feel like loving difficult people, then I want you to do that. That'll be your spiritual gift. No, the call here is for everyone who belongs to Jesus to love everyone who belongs to Jesus. That's universally true, but it's particularly true in this local outpost of the kingdom of heaven. That's part of our worship. And so if I look at you and say, I'm not going to love you because I don't think you're worthy of my love, I've totally misunderstood what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews is saying, I'm going to love you because Jesus is worthy of me loving you. The worship of Christ demands that I love my brothers and sisters. It's part of our worship. You know, this connection between loving neighbor and loving God is nothing new. Pastor Walton just a few minutes ago read the Ten Commandments. 
we would all agree those are a guide to love God. But theologians sometimes speak of the two tables of the law. The first four commandments are specifically how you love, your, how you love God. So how do you love God? Well, don't have any other gods before him and don't create any graven images of him and, and don't take his name in vain and remember the Sabbath day. But then you come to the fifth through tenth commandments and they all become horizontal. And so how do you love your neighbor? Well, don't. You need to honor your father and your mother, and and don't kill, and don't commit adultery, and don't steal, and don't lie, and don't covet. And and so if I want to love God, then I've got to do both the vertical of loving him, the first four commandments, and the horizontal of loving my neighbor. God cares deeply how we treat one another. Psalm 133, verse 1, behold how good a thing it is when brothers dwell in unity. God is saying, I delight when the church gets along, when they love one another. And so, beloved, if you love Christ, hear what the author of Hebrews is saying. Let brotherly love continue. Cultivate real care, real love, real concern for one another. Because you can't simultaneously love God and hate your brother. Jesus made this point back in Matthew 5. Look there with me. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you've come to worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. It may be that you've offended your brother. It may be that you've been harboring unforgiveness and bitterness against your brother. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. He he says it in that order because you can't worship God and simultaneously hate your brothers and sisters. You you can't love God and hate his bride. And so Jesus says, go, clear that up, be reconciled, then come back and worship. Then your worship is acceptable. You know, John undoubtedly knew the words of Matthew 5. In 1 John chapter 4, he, he says it much more starkly. He says, you can't hate your brother and love God. You can't do it. John's serious about loving one another. Why? Because Christ cherishes when we are committed to loving one another as brothers and sisters in the church. He cherishes that. There's a lot of reasons that we could go into, but I just want to think of one right now. Perhaps the chief reason is because when brothers and sisters in the church love each other, just as Jesus has said, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we do that, It is a tangible picture of the gospel. It displays in a tangible way the love of Christ because if if we're a group of people who say we have been deeply impacted by the love of Christ and the ways that he has shown grace to us and we live by faith in that grace, then we are also going to extend that grace to others. And so the grace that brothers and sisters share to one another, the love that brothers and sisters in Christ share with one another, it's a visible, tangible picture before the world of the reality of the gospel. 
And, and you can see the converse. If we say that we have been loved and transformed by Christ, but we are mean to one another and unforgiving to one another, it undermines the whole gospel, doesn't it? And, and of course, if that's true, that, that, that division and, and gossip and slander and all those things undermine the gospel, then you better believe Satan's going to be working towards those things all the time. There will be a day where we all love one another perfectly. There will be no sense of division. There will be no sense of, uh, 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 of dissension among brothers and sisters. But today we're in a spiritual battle. We are what's sometimes referred to as the church militant. We are the church at war. And we are constantly under attack by the evil one who would love to undermine all the good things Jesus is doing here at First Scots by creating division. we've got to realize the peace of the church as brothers and sisters love each other well and extend forgiveness and grace, it is a precious gem. It is precious to Christ, but it is easily lost. And so when Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue, another way to translate it is be constant. Let it be constant. Don't let it lapse because it can be very hard to recover once it's gone. That's why so many church splits happen, not because of doctrine, but because brothers and sisters don't know how to love each other well. They don't value the peace and purity of the church to the glory of Christ. Well, how do we do that? Let's have a couple of practical thoughts just about how to love one another well, to let nothing come in the way of loving our church family. First, Christians must be slow to give offense and extremely quick to forgive offenses. In fact, we should be the slowest people in the world to be offended and the quickest people in the world to forgive offenses. That, that first part, be slow to, to give offense, it was summarized by a, a, a friend of mine, a very wise older pastor and you would think this wise older pastor is going to have some very nuanced advice about peace in the church he says you know it's really simple christians just shouldn't be jerks it's that simple if if christians aren't jerks that's going to mitigate half the problems and the other half is that sometimes our feelings can get hurt way too easily. We didn't get recognized for something we accomplished. We we accidentally hurt somebody's feelings, those things. We live in a culture that loves to be offended. Beloved, being constantly offended is not a Christian virtue. Look with me at, at Proverbs 19. And I know in many ways I'm preaching to the choir because I do not think this is a church that looks to be offended. I don't think there are many in this room that are overly sensitive. But there's always room for all of us to grow, myself included. Look at Proverbs 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In other words, it's a mark of maturity to say, I'm not going to be offended by everything that happens. I, I'm going to extend grace rather than harboring bitterness. So we should be slow to give offense, quick to forgive offenses. Second, we should assume the best of each other all the time. 
We ought to always assume the best. So if somebody walks by you and they've, they've ignored you or, or, or they've, they've failed to follow up with you, whatever it is, assume the best. Give the benefit of the doubt. One of the things that can get easy to do is, is assume that every time somebody hurts our feelings or does something we don't like, that they are sinning. But sometimes it's just people are awkward. Sometimes we can just make mistakes and accidentally hurt each other's feelings. We need to be clear on that, that being socially awkward or being peculiar or not saying the right thing at the right time is not necessarily sin. And so oftentimes when people get bent out of shape with each other, it's not a sin issue. It's that we didn't give each other the benefit of the doubt. We didn't assume the best of each other. And we have to be really careful because if you accidentally do something and it offends me and I respond to you in sin, you have not sinned, but I have. If I respond in gossip or slander or any of those things, then I am sinning against you. And so we've got to guard ourselves and make sure that we assume the best of others. And then third, when you're at odds with someone, go restore them gently. Restore them with great gentleness. Maybe they have a genuinely done something wrong. And sometimes it just feels so good to whack somebody over the head with a hammer after they've hurt you, doesn't it? Charles Spurgeon, I love the way he says this. He says, don't deal with a small fault as if it were a great crime. If you see a fly on your son's forehead, don't try to kill it with a sledgehammer. Or you may kill the boy also. Do the needful but difficult work of reproving with kindness and wisdom. This is the command of our Lord. Let brotherly love be constant. This is what, by the way, Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, John 17. He prayed for unity. Unity is the fruit of a constant abiding love. That means, then, that if someone disrupts the unity of and brotherly love of the church with slander, with gossip, with undermining leadership, with dissension, you're actively working against the prayers of Jesus. We should take that with great sobriety. Let brotherly love continue. Let nothing stop you from loving your church family. That's the first thing. Second, open up your lives to others. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's a command here. It's probably a little bit less common for us to have opportunity to practice this than it would have been in the first century, but there are opportunities, and there is a principle behind it, and so we're going to look at both. The command is welcome strangers and show them hospitality. And I think he has in mind here particularly traveling believers. And, and that would have been a very difficult practice uh, because in the first century, inns were dirty, dangerous, expensive, immoral places. Uh, did any of your parents used to say to you, good night, sleep tight, don't let the bed, bed bugs bite? Well, if you stayed in an inn, there's a really good chance the bed bugs were going to bite. And you were going to pay a lot for them to bite. And oh, by the way, ends doubled generally as brothels. 
So if you love your brothers, you don't want them to have to stay there when they're passing through town. If you were to read 3 John this afternoon, that'd be a great practice. 3 John is all about showing hospitality to others, welcoming others. Uh, this is important for us today. Uh, we're, we should open our homes to believers who are traveling. When there are missionaries passing through or missionaries home on furlough, uh, we, we have enough space. We, there should be plenty of offers. When we have Christians visiting, I know there are many of you that I can call on and you love to use whatever space you have for the blessing of others. I think the way Third John, I'm not going to turn there now, but I think the way John is saying it is, if love doesn't issue in a hospitable home, love has not begun to do its work in your home. So that's the command, take strangers into your home. I think the principle behind it is even bigger, and that is we're to open our lives up to one another. We're to open our lives up to one another. You know, the Middle East is really, they're famous for this. They, they, they show hospitality so well, opening their homes, inviting others to their tables. In America, we are not as proficient at that. I think the South used to be better at it, but most of us are fiercely independent people. We like our privacy. We don't like to be inconvenienced, and so we can be sort of closed off. What's ours is ours, and we really tend to not like to share it. That's sort of the nature of our, uh, of our breeding. We like our stuff. We like our privacy. The call to hospitality is to open it all up to one another, to open our lives up, to share life with one another, to pour our lives into one another, and constantly seek to use what we have to be a blessing to others. That takes work, because of that fierce independence that exists in so many of us, it takes work to open our doors, to open our lives up in service to Christ. But, but it's, it's, it's our worship. Look again at verse 16, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You want to worship God? Then open your life up to others. Be generous with what you have, with the space you have, with the stuff you have, with the time you have. So what is that going to look like practically for us at First Scott's? Well, I think first it looks like opening our homes up not to impress others, but to encourage. That's one of the struggles for many of us. If the house isn't in order, if the meal isn't a gourmet meal, if everything's not perfect, then we don't welcome anyone into our homes. And we're closed off because we don't want people to see things how they are. We don't want people to see what a mess we can be sometimes. Do you realize, though, that's not hospitality? That's entertainment. When you just want to impress others, that's not the biblical command to hospitality. Hospitality is when we say, welcome to my mess, pull up a chair, have a seat, let's get to know each other. That's biblical hospitality. It doesn't have to be perfect. It shouldn't be perfect. It will never be perfect. Not this side of glory. You know, I think one of the most wonderfully joyful impressions that I've ever received of Christian hospitality in my life. It, it made an indelible imprint on me. It's been a decade, but there was a very prominent family in a very prominent uh, Reformed church, 
and the wife spotted some visitors at the church. She had never seen them before. And on a Sunday morning, she went up to them. She said, I haven't prepared anything. All we have is grilled cheese and soup, but we would love for you to come and, enjoy, and join us at our table. This was a very prominent family. And it was amazing to me that she was saying, it's okay that my house is a mess and you're not going to be very impressed with the meal. I'm not here to impress you. I want to get to know you. I want to hear about your heart and I want to tell you about Jesus. That's what she was doing and it was wonderful to watch. And I think for those of us who say, you know, I, I can't show hospitality because of all the imperfections in my life, in my home, Actually, the imperfections can be a ministry in themselves. When we don't feel like we need to impress each other, when we can just be comfortable with who we are in Christ, that's a wonderful Christian witness. Ladies, when you're able to say, my identity doesn't rest in my ability to cook a meal or to keep my home, but rather in who Jesus is, that is an astounding and countercultural Christian witness. Some of you have really struggled to figure out what your ministry is. Maybe you don't play piano like Judy or Mary Kay. You, you don't, you're not an elder. You're not a teacher. And, and you're here and you're thinking, where do I fit in? How do I use my gifts? Hebrews is making this clear. Hospitality, opening our lives up to each other, is every Christian's ministry to whatever degree you can. That's going to look different in every single situation. But it doesn't require great resources. It doesn't require great skill. And it makes a huge impact for the kingdom. What an incredible ministry you could have if the folks in this congregation would have a meal ready for Sunday lunch and just leave several spots at the table open and then start inviting folks for church every week. Or even just once a month. But go up to people, hey, get to know them. Do you have lunch plans? We would love for you. And by the way, we've got visitors here. Week after week, we're a vacation town. Most folks don't want to eat out on the Lord's Day, but may not have a whole lot of choice. You're doing them a great double service by inviting them and saying, hey, we'd love to have you in our home. We have a principle here. If you feed them, they will come. If we were good at this, if we had that habit going week after week, of leaving a place or a few places at the table, it would be an incredible ministry. I think within a couple months, we'd have 50 Marines or USCB students here week after week who simply, they might say, that guy can't preach, but man, those people can cook. I'll go for that. And, and, and so we need to open our home and use our resources, not to, not to impress people, but to encourage them. And then second, I think it looks like going out of our way to use talents and resources to be a blessing to others. If we really understand life together, then we begin to understand that my gifts and my resources don't belong to me, they belong to us. This is true for every believer. I'm not promoting that we all uh, uh, have one account and just draw out of that week after week. I'm not promoting that sort of thing. What I'm saying is... My gifts exist for you, and your gifts exist for each other. So whatever talents and resources we have, we ought to go out of our way to use them. Can you babysit? I mean, can you keep kids alive for two hours? We've got a lot of families that haven't had a date in a while. 
Go ask a young family in the church, hey, when's the last time you had a date? I think I can keep your child alive for two hours. Go. And if you have $20, give them 20 Actually, okay, $50. $20 will not get them anything. But give them money for the date. Can you cut grass? Call a widow in the church and ask, hey, can I come cut your grass or can I do work around your house? Uh, we've got two families moving in the next week, uh, in the next two weeks, excuse me. And go out of your way. Set aside that time. And some of you are thinking, well, Saturdays are my day. Yes, but you belong to each other. Open your lives up to one another. Go out of your way to bless one another. You want to see how important hospitality is here? Look at the end of verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He could be talking about Manoah. He could be talking about Lot. I think he's talking about Abraham. Abraham, Genesis 18, had the supernatural visit from the Lord and angels, and from that story, uh, we see Abraham run to greet them. This is Genesis 18. He pays them homage. He, he provides them water to wash their feet. He gives them a place to rest. He gives them a, a great feast, and he escorts them down the road as they leave. He is the consummate host. In fact, in, in the Jewish mind, Abraham was the premier model of hospitality. And I don't think it's saying you should show hospitality because you never know if you have that guy over to the house if he's actually an angel. What it's saying is if you look at the purposes of God, one of the things he has used greatly throughout the history of, of redemption was hospitality. Ordinary people showing ordinary ministry in their daily lives. He's saying, you know, you never understand. You can never imagine the eternal consequences of what you're doing. So we're to open our lives up to one another. Third, third aspect of life together is deep care and empathy. And I'm going to add, for those suffering for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We're always to show care. We're always to show empathy. But the, the context here is those who've been imprisoned and are being mistreated. I, I think it extends to everyone who's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Uh, in the first century, the prison system would not have made sure that people were fed and clothed like it does today. So who did they rely on? Well, they relied on family. But what happens if you're a Christian? You were raised Jewish, you become a Christian, your family abandons you, and now you are in prison for the sake of Christ. Well, you are utterly reliant on your brothers and sisters to come and to visit you and care for you. We see Paul in a lot of his letters saying, hey, would you send me the parchments? I'd like my cloak, those sort of things. He's utterly reliant upon the care of the family of Christ, the, the care and the empathy of the family of Christ. You know, this is so important that Jesus, in Matthew 25, he's talking about the final judgment, and he says, one of the marks of those who belong to me, one of the marks of a true Christian is caring for those in prison, caring for those who are mistreated. Now, I'm going to guess that maybe only a couple of us in this room know anybody who is in prison because of the gospel. It's not that it's not happening. It's just not happening in our context by the grace of God. I wonder if you realize this, though. There are more persecuted and mistreated Christians in the world today than ever in the history of the church, as far as we know. One statistic says 
there are at least 360 million Christians who experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination in 2022. We might say, well, that's kind of subjective. What is high levels of persecution and discrimination? Well, the same uh, source estimates that in 2022, 5,898 Christians were martyred for the sake of the gospel. That's in the last year. That was a thousand more than the year before. This is happening day by day. And who are those people? They're not remote people on the other side of the world. Those are your brothers and sisters. Hey, you, 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 you won't see them. You won't lay eyes on them until glory. But our hearts ought to go out to them. Our prayers should be for them today. The principle is we as a church must care well and show empathy for those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. Voice of the Martyrs is a great resource to read on that, and it talks about who, how people are suffering throughout the world. But you know, it's not just remote places that people are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. There's folks in this room, especially younger folks, who may lose a lot because they follow Christ. If you're committed to salvation in Jesus Christ alone, it will cost you. If you're committed to biblical marriage, it will cost you. If you're committed to historic and biblical definitions of man and woman, it will cost you. Some of you will lose relationships. Some of you will lose jobs. Many will lose standing in the community. And maybe eventually we will in this country go to prison for our faith. I have no idea. Only the Lord knows that. But just look at the context around us. This is June. You might think this must be Noahic Covenant Appreciation Month because you see rainbows everywhere. But it's Pride Month. LGBTQ Pride Month. Do they not know that pride goes before the fall? It's the month of the year in which companies publicize how virtuous they are by pandering to a small minority of people. And the reality is, today, you must conform or you will suffer. I don't know if you saw this, just this past week, you had a professional baseball player who was being ostracized and ridiculed by the news because he refused to support Pride Week. And it'll happen more and more. When a culture holds the Bible in contempt and they mock biblical morality and they despise God himself, we should not be surprised to find that we too are held in contempt. Christ said his disciples would be hated as he was. Do you know what ought to be the thing we can count on? If our families, if our jobs, if everybody else in the world forsakes us, Humanly speaking, the one thing we should be able to count on is our brothers and sisters in Christ saying, hey, we're not going anywhere. We are right here with you. Verse 3 gives us the rationale. It says, because you're part of the body too. You know, if you stub your toe, even the pinky toe, for some reason that one hurts so bad, But if you stub your toe, you don't go, oh, it's okay, it's just my toe. You feel the pain of it because it's your body. You're part of that body. 
when others suffer for the sake of the gospel, it should pain us all. We should have deep care and empathy so that we can bear one another's burdens. One of the great examples of this in Scripture is Onesiphorus. Do we have any children on the way? Onesiphorus, great name. But, but 2 Timothy 1, here's what Paul says about Onesiphorus. You're all aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Why? Because Paul's in prison. Among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he earnestly searched and found me. The call here is to be a modern-day Onesiphorus, to encourage those who are suffering for the gospel. I want you to put yourself in Onesiphorus' shoes for a moment. They'd say, you know Paul? We don't like that guy. There may be a day where someone in this church is put in a position of opposing the culture for the sake of Christ, and it goes viral. That happens so easily today. Would you be a modern-day Onesiphorus? If someone says, oh, you go to First Scots, isn't that the church that David goes to? Didn't you see what David said about gender, about marriage? I hear he got fired from his job for being narrow-minded. You really hang out with that guy? Yeah, he's my brother. I'm not ashamed of him. That's what Onesiphorus did for Paul, and we are to do that as well, to care for those who suffer, especially for those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is hard stuff, isn't it? It's just three verses. It shouldn't be hard, but it is. It's hard because we're naturally selfish, and it takes work to do these things. That's why Hebrews calls it an offering. That's why Hebrews calls it a sacrifice. If it were easy, it wouldn't be worship. The way we treat one another in the church isn't about each other's likability or lovability or worthiness. It's about the worship that Christ deserves. And his worship is not just vertical. It transforms the ways we relate to each other. What so often happens when life in the church gets hard, when people get hurt feelings and so on, they flee. They flee. But instead of fleeing the church, what we ought to do instead is flee to Christ. He often uses those difficulties to draw us closer to himself. An individual who is gossipy and slanderous and divisive, all they're really saying is, I'm not walking with Christ. A church that is, is at odds over everything, what they're saying to the world is we are just not mature enough to love each other. If there's ever anyone you have a hard time loving, run to Christ. If you want the model of real hospitality, run to Christ. If you don't understand what deep care and empathy look like, run to Christ. And what we're to do is not only to imitate his model, but first to absorb it into our own hearts so that it would transform us and it would orient us, compel us to love one another as Christ has loved us. How do we apply this text? First, it's obvious, but it needs to be said. 
you can't do this if you're not gathering with the people of God. I'm not talking about those who are providentially hindered with health issues and cannot reasonably gather with the church. I'm talking about the many who say, you know, I'd rather just sit on my couch in my pajamas and sip a cup of coffee, and and if it gets kind of long, I can fast forward through a few minutes of it. Worship is not about ease and comfort. Worship is about intentionally living our lives to the glory of Christ. And if you're doing that alone, when you could be with the saints in corporate worship, you are not able to do what this passage tells you to do. Maybe you're avoiding in-person worship because the people are difficult. This command requires us to engage with one another personally, with our brothers and sisters, to the glory of God, unless we are so providentially hindered that we cannot possibly be there. But that should not be the norm. And the last three years have made virtual worship, if that is a thing, They have made it more and more the norm in the American church. It should never be the norm. It should always, always, always be the exception. Second application. Make sure you're you're working to obey the scriptures. We saw that last week in Hebrews 12, 25. Do not refuse him who is speaking. He's saying don't become sermon proof. Don't harden your heart and ignore the word. You and I need to remember that because these things, we can become so good at making excuses. Well, once I get the house in order, once I have more time, once I, and, and we always punt on these commands for hospitality and, and, and to open our lives up and to care for each other well. There may be legitimate providential reasons now is not a good time, but most of the time those are excuses. And so, Be sure, be careful that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you in his word. Final application. We're coming to the Lord's table in a few minutes. It's a communal act. 1 Corinthians 11 makes that clear. We don't partake alone. We do it as a family. We do it as a body. It tells us there, as you come to the table, you're proclaiming the Lord's death to each other. You are standing before God's people saying, this is what I believe. This is what I proclaim. And Christ instituted this meal not just for our fellowship with him, but for richer, deeper fellowship with one another. So let me ask you, before we come to the table in a few minutes, beloved, is there a relationship you need to make right? Is there someone you've been harboring bitterness against and you've been unwilling to forgive? Maybe they don't even know about it, but it's tearing your heart apart and it's distracting you in worship. Or is there someone that's wronged you and uh, that you need to go and uh, make it right? Whatever it is, make it right in your heart right now before you come to the table And then make it your aim to go to that person as soon as possible before you come back into worship. And make it right with that person. If Christ has reconciled you to himself, we too ought to seek to be reconciled to one another. Let's go to our God in prayer. Lord, in many ways, when we talk just about the vertical, it can be easy because we can talk about these things in theological terms and theoretical terms, but when it's brought home into our daily lives, into the body of Christ, we are good at putting up walls. We are good at shelling up. We're good 
at, at coming up with excuses, excuses why we haven't loved the brethren well, excuses why we don't open our lives up to one another, excuses why we don't show deep care and empathy. And I pray that you would just melt our excuses with your love and help us to practice the same sort